Friends, our second reading today is the entire letter from Paul to Philemon. But don't worry, it's only 21 verses. Hear these words. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker. To Apphia, our sister. To Archippus, our fellow soldier. And to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When I remember you in my prayers, I always thank my God because I hear of your love for all the saints and your faith toward the Lord Jesus. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective when you perceive all the good that we may do for Christ. I have indeed received much joy and encouragement from your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, my brother. For this reason, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty, I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. And I, Paul, do this as an old man and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I am appealing to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I have become during my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now indeed he is useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, that is my own heart, back to you. I wanted to keep him with me so that he might be of service to me during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. Perhaps this is the reason he was separated from you for a while, so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but as more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. I say nothing about your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, let me have this benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I am writing to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. One thing more. Prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping through your prayers to be restored to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Jesus Christ, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Damas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is the shortest of all of Paul's letters. In the Greek, it is a mere 335 words. And yet, it's still a bit difficult to follow exactly what's going on here. There are three major players in this letter. Paul is the imprisoned letter writer. Onesimus is the slave. And Philemon is the slave owner and recipient of the letter. Now, part of the reason it's hard to follow the narrative here is 
we don't have all that much information. We know that Onesimus is apart from Philemon, but we don't know if he escaped or if he was sent away. But however it came to be, he is away from his master. And while he was away, he spent time with Paul and developed a close friendship and became a Christian. And so Paul now writes a letter on his behalf. Here's what we know about slavery in the ancient world. Owners had exclusive rights over slaves, including the right to inflict punishment and even death. Estimates suggest that the slave population in the Greco-Roman world was between 25 and 30 percent of the entire population. And fugitive slaves were required to be returned, and anyone found harboring a fugitive slave could and usually would be charged with theft. Here's what we know about slavery in our somewhat more modern world. This letter is one of the texts that has been long used to justify slavery in the United States. And even though that is not the takeaway for us today, we have a moral imperative not to ignore this fact, especially because slavery is not entirely relegated to our history. Even if it looks different, there is still slavery today. I make no excuse for how the church has long used this text in harmful ways, But I will take this chance to remind you once more that 25% of the special offering we are collecting these next two weeks supports the largest anti-slavery organization in the world. Paul and Onesimus and Philemon. Paul writes a letter on behalf of Onesimus, not with a command, but with an appeal based upon love. And he goes on to tell Philemon that his slave, whose, by the way, whose slave name means useful, he tells him that this man has been useful, that Paul has in fact come to claim him as a son. Nevertheless, Paul writes, I am sending him, that is my own heart, I am sending him back to you. I wanted to keep him with me, but... I prefer to do nothing without your consent. Now you have him back forever, he says, no longer as a slave, but as more than a slave, a beloved brother in the Lord. So receive him just as you would receive me. This letter may not be particularly well known, But there is another letter written about a slave that most of us, at some point, have read over the course of our education. In the adventures of Huckleberry Finn, Huck befriends Jim, a runaway slave. Jim is his companion as they travel down the Mississippi River, and Jim becomes not only a friend, but more of a surrogate father to the teenager. After helping Jim escape a second captivity, knowing what the law requires of him, Huck is overwhelmed with a sense of dis-ease and a sense of sin. So he sits down to write a letter to Jim's master, Miss Watson, 
telling her where Jim is and how she can get him back. Then, Huck says, I felt good and all washed clean of sin for the first time I had ever felt so in my life, and I knew I could pray now. But I didn't do it straight off. I laid the paper down and sat there thinking, thinking how good it was all this had happened and how near I came to being lost and going to hell. But I went on thinking, and I got to thinking over our trip down the river, and I see Jim before me all the time, in the day and in the nighttime, sometimes moonlight, sometimes storms, and we are floating along, talking and singing and laughing. Somehow, I couldn't seem to strike no places to harden me against him, only the other kind. I'd see him standing my watch on top of his instead of calling to me so I could go on sleeping. I'd see how glad he was when I came back out of the fog and when I came to him again in the swamp up there where the feud was, times like that he would call me honey and do everything he could think of for me. He was always so good. And at last, I saw the time I saved him by telling the men we had smallpox aboard. And he was so grateful. He said I was the best friend old Jim ever had in the world, and certainly the only one he's got now. And then I happened to look around and see that paper. That paper, of course, is the letter he wrote. And Huck realizes that while the law requires him to send it, the right thing is to tear it up. And so he does, and he saves Jim's life. But rest assured, this does not happen only in our fiction. In December of 1941, Japan attacked the United States of America at Pearl Harbor. Over 3,000 Americans lost their lives, and we went to war. In February of 1942, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed an executive order requiring the incarceration of everyone of Japanese descent in much of California, Washington, and Oregon. Orders were sent to 120,000 people to leave their homes, their farms, or their businesses and they were not told where they were going. Alice was nine years old. She and her mother and her younger brother, Harry, they packed up the farm. Her father had been picked up by the FBI two months earlier, and no one had seen or heard from him since. Now, Alice and Harry were born in California. They were American citizens. Their mother and father were born in California. They, too, were American citizens. None of them had ever set foot in Japan. Alice remembers this being a frantic and frightening time. When the day came, they were permitted to bring with them only what they could carry. And as they walked to the downtown with others of the Japanese-American community, they waited for buses as soldiers kept an eye on them. While they were waiting, 
They sat down because they had walked over three miles. Harry said he was hungry, and he asked his mother for something to eat. And Alice, she remembers how that question was what made her mother break down and cry for the very first time. She apologized to her children. She said, I am so sorry. I am so sorry that I am such a bad mother. I forgot to bring food. So Alice remembers scolding her brother for making their mother cry and then leaving to see if she could find something, anything, for them to eat and drink. In the crowd, there was a tall white woman, and she was carrying a tray of sandwiches and fruit and cups of juice. Alice asked her if she was selling the food. The woman smiled and said no. She offered the food to Alice for free. Alice refused. She said, I can pay for it. And the woman insisted. But I don't know you, Alice said to her. The woman said, I am a Quaker. I am your Christian friend, and the people of my church think what is happening to you is wrong. So we have brought sandwiches and juice and fruit to give away. Alice took some of the food back to her mother and brother. Harry began eating right away, but their mother asked, Where did this come from? From a white woman, Alice said, who says she is our Christian friend. Well, that is not possible, her mother said back. We are Buddhist. We don't know any Christians. They are not our friends, and white people are afraid of us right now. So Alice went back to the woman and said, We don't have any Christian friends. The woman smiled again and said, Well, you do now. Shortly thereafter, Alice and Harry and their mother boarded a bus. They were taken to the Tanferan racetrack in San Mateo, where they lived in a horse stall for six months. Then they were sent by train to an internment camp in Arizona, a bit south of Phoenix, where they lived for two and a half years. During that time, their father rejoined them. He had been imprisoned in South Dakota. When the war was over, Alice and her family, they moved to Idaho, and they began farming again. At school, Alice met Becky, a Nazarene student, who one day invited Alice to sleep over at her house and to go to church with her and her family in the morning. Initially, Alice's mother said no. She said, you have a bed here in this house. Why would you sleep somewhere else? Mother, Alice said, Becky is my Christian friend. And so she was allowed to spend the night. This pattern repeated itself most weekends, and eventually Alice joined the church, declaring her trust in Jesus Christ. Sometime later, Alice's family moved again, this time back to California to start over And as soon as they were settled, Alice began worshiping at the San Lorenzo Japanese Christian Church. She convinced her family to join her, and remembering their Christian friends, they agreed. Eventually, they too joined the church, placing their trust in Jesus. 
When Alice was a college student, a young seminarian from Berkeley Baptist Divinity School came to that church as a student pastor. Alice found him handsome and conceited. The seminary student remembers thinking Alice was smart and beautiful. So he asked her out on a date. She said no. He asked again. She said no again. But he was persistent, and eventually she said yes. They fell in love, and they were married. Alice and Richard had four sons. One of them is an optometrist in Los Angeles. One of them recently retired as an air traffic controller in Honolulu. One of them works for a nonprofit agency serving immigrant families in Seattle. And one of them is my dear friend, the Reverend Dr. Roger Nishioka, who is one of the most highly regarded, highly sought after preachers and teachers in the Presbyterian Church throughout the world. When Roger tells this story, which he very graciously shared with me, he says, I am standing here because of one Quaker woman and her tray of sandwiches, fruit, and juice. And then he says, when I go to heaven, I cannot wait to meet that woman I want to ask her, how did you have the courage to act when everyone else in the country, including the president, was convinced that my mother at nine years old was not to be trusted? I want to ask her, he says, but mostly I want to thank her. All we know of Onesimus and Philemon is what's in that letter. There is no follow-up account of what Philemon chose to do. But we do have that letter, which means it was read, and it was read again and again. It means that someone kept it, and it means they kept reading it, because that is the only reason it ends up in our Bibles today. And I have to assume that they kept the letter, because when it was read aloud in Philemon's house that first time, something changed. And so they believed that perhaps if it was read again in the future, things could change again. This letter, all 335 words of it, bears witness to what friendship can do. It can save lives. Maybe even more remarkably, it can change lives. So be a friend today, this week, this month. Be a friend to someone who needs it. For that is a faithful and holy task, even if all you have to offer is a sandwich and some juice. The impact may well be larger than you could ever imagine. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. 
Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.